So happy Juneteenth. Yes. Black Freedom Day. Black American Freedom Day, at least. Yes. Yes. Always good. Always good. Um, but we have a brand new topic today. The topic today is becoming a real estate investor, the planning and the pitfalls. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of ways to approach that. There's a lot of ways to think about that. Let me just get our little banner up. So here's our title for today, Becoming a Real Estate Investor, The Planning and the Pitfalls. And um, what kind of got me thinking about this topic today was an article that I read um, in Forbes. And it was an article about reparations, actually. Um, speaking of Juneteenth and the end of slavery, and it said it was about new research showing that reparation payments could increase the life expectancy of Black Americans. Crazy. And it's such a great thing. You know, I love the fact that this topic came up and I love the fact that this is something that someone was looking into. But what I found interesting, so there were two things that I found interesting. So one was the amount. So the amount that they were saying was somewhere around $825,000, $826,000. I forget if it was per individual or per family. Um or per household, I, I forget household. what the exact amount was. Um, mm -hmm. They said that that would be a life-changing amount. And one of the people that they spoke to was saying that he would use that amount to wipe out the six-figure debt he had on his home and also to help his, his child, I think it was his daughter, um, have a higher quality education. And so it wasn't so much that the money itself, just having money would change life expectancies, but the ways in which it would be used would yes. be how it would have that effect on people's life. And so the, the connection I'm making to this conversation today is that six figure number, because he was talking about, you know, using it to wipe out a six figure mortgage. And so that got me thinking about one of the first points about, you know, the planning around being a real estate investor. And that is you are going to have a six or maybe even a seven figure debt. Like that's just the reality. Um, and it's basically because, you know, if you're taking out a mortgage, you're going to have to, of course, you'll have some left over and that's going to be six figures, most likely for most people, six figures. Or if you amass a lot of real estate, it could rise into the seven figure number as well. So I know that's kind of scary for some people, but also I don't know that people really think about it. I think they just think I'm going to get a property. I'm going to have a property. It's going to make me money. But they also have to think about the debt service to that as well. And, you know, just planning around that and just thinking about what that means to be in that position, but then also to have and carry that debt as they go along. And I would like to just interject and actually make a connection between the two things you just described. One was a person who was probably describing the home they live in, carrying a mortgage there and wanting to wipe that out and use the rest of the funds or some of the remaining funds to pay for their child's education. And then the connection you're making about how that money could be used, which is to yes, put money in real estate, but put money in real estate with a perspective of actually making return on that investment, not necessarily eliminating debt, but consciously taking on debt as a way to make money from that. So that's called leveraging. So owning a property that you live in is a form of investment, certainly. Hopefully it holds value, Hopefully it increases in value. So you benefit from the appreciation in the home's value. You build equity just by living in the property over time if it continues to increase in value. But there are also ways to make money beyond appreciation, 
beyond the value rising in time. And that is to actually strategically use debt to have a way of making income or what we call passive income. So that's a fun way to think about. For me, honestly, if I was offered $825,000, I know immediately what I would do. I would buy three buildings and I would buy three buildings that are worth each $825,000, putting down 25% on each building. And I'd still have a couple hundred thousand left over to use for my reserve, my buffer. And so what we're talking about is taking an amount of money and tilting it up to be worth more in the near term and the long term. So that's the fun stuff. Let me ask you this question because I was asked this one time. So I found myself in a position several years ago where I had enough money where I could have purchased. So I did what you did. I, I took bits and pieces of what I had and I, and I bought two units and I had some money left over. But one person who asked me, so it was a realtor who asked me, well, why don't I just put a lot down on one, just put a lot down on one and then just put it down a little on the rest and then just not carry any cash for anything else. Like, you know, so that's sort of the opposite of what you just did, but you know, why wouldn't you do that? Like, what would your thoughts be around that? Well, I haven't done it yet, but I want to. So I'm like, okay. let me, let me vision and attract this reparations money. <laughs> let me get this 825 mm -hmm. and, and play with it. Um, I think what that question lights up is comfort level with risk. And you think about risk in terms of time, you know, like what do you need that money to do for you this year and the next two years versus five versus 20 or 30 years. So the longer span of time you have, uh, the more you might be willing to take on certain risks. And so we, there's not a one way to leverage the money you have in a way that's successful or strategic. It really depends on the context and depends on your priorities and depends on what risks you can afford to take. If you have money in other places, then sure, you can spend all that cash in one way. But you know what I would say is you wanna, one, think about distributing the risk. So that's why I would buy three buildings because let's say the rent goes down in one location, but the rent is holding steady or going up in another. I'm spread. If there's some uh, environmental catastrophe where one of my buildings is, I'm not having to wait for that building to be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. I am, you know, to, to be making any rental income. I'm still getting income on the other buildings. So that's one, that's one of the key aspects of leverage is actually spreading your money out, making it so that your renter, your tenant is actually covering your costs and then some. And then the cash that you have in, you don't just think about that as money in your pocket. You think about that as more money to invest. You're saving some of that for your next building or your next project. You're saving some of that for renovations and improvements, upgrades. You're saving some of that for uh, vacancies, for times in, in, in the season or in a market or during recession where your rent is not as strong, right? So you're actually thinking about all the ways to spread out the money. My goal is not to just decrease debt. You can functionally and strategically use debt. And I think that Black folks have reason, right? reasons being conditioned in this economy and in U.S. society to be wary of debt and to be frightened by it um, because systemically strategic, uh, and, and, and historically, Black people have been manipulated um, around borrowing money. Uh, but if you can do it in a way that's informed and strategic, um, you can actually do very, very well with it without being taken advantage of. And so it's about being informed about how to do it well. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you say debt, so two things come to mind. 
One is the words that our guests today have told me in the past, which is the American dream is built on debt. And it took me, it took me a while to think about that and to sort of let that sink in. But I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. The American dream is built on debt. Um, and that's true in, in so many ways. And, and I'm sure she'll have more to say about that when she comes on. Um, but then the second thing I'm thinking about, and this kind of leads to the second of our talking points is, is it worth it? Because um, some people have to think about that. Is it worth it to take on the debt? Is it worth it to, well, let me get into this point. So when we had our conversation at the summit not so long ago, mm -hmm. after the Q&A, so after the Q&A, once the session was over, someone came up to me and he asked me, should I tap into my 401k? I think, I think it was a 401k. Should I tap into my 401k or whatever retirement vehicle it was and use those funds in order to make a down payment on property or to purchase a property? And so first I had to say to him, and I say this to everybody here, I am not a CFP. I'm not a certified financial planner. I, I cannot give you that kind not of advice. any kind of financial planner. <laughs> right, right. That is true. I'm not any kind of financial planner, so I cannot give that kind of advice. But what I would ask, what I asked him, and you know, that's the question for this, this, this yeah. piece is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to you? And so what I wanted him to think about was, he was young. I don't think he was even 30 at that time. I think he was 29, maybe he was just turning 30. And I told him, you have to think about the compound interest that you're going to have on that, that 401k or whatever it was. It was something that generates compound interest. And I said, think about that. Like you're young and the money that you take out, that you would take out now, you're going to lose out on that compound interest, which will accrue over time over yeah. the next, what is it, 39 years, 35 years, whatever it is. I forget what the number is that you can take right. out that money. And, and I said, you know, whatever you need for a down payment is probably small enough yes. that you save up over the next two or three years and apply that to your down payment so that you don't miss out on both. You might have to delay your gratification a little bit in terms of real estate, in terms of getting that down payment and buying that piece of property. And yes, property will appreciate over the next two or three years, but you should still, I'm hoping, I hope he will, but you should still be able to catch up at some point or be able to accrue enough at some point where you can put that down payment on that property, get that down payment, put it down, get the property and still not touch your 401k and not jeopardize some other part of your financial life. Because you don't want to sacrifice, I would suggest, you don't want to sacrifice one part of your financial life in favor of another. And there also may be a middle path. Um, and that's where it is important to be talking with a planner. And we actually will be bringing on at least one planner in the near future here on our podcast. So looking forward to that. And we can raise some of those questions there. Um, I think it also depends on the market in which you're buying. Um, and I think it depends on how much money you have in your 401k and how much you could pull out. Um, so there are ways that it is strategic for someone if they can't otherwise get a ground in a very expensive housing market to pull money from there and put it into real estate so they can own the thing they live in, especially if they're not having to pull out a ton from their 401k. But so it's like, the, it may not be as clean as an either or, it might be a combination. Uh, we also, I often have clients borrow from their 401k short term and put money back. So there might be ways to play around with that in time as well. Um, but it, I agree with you certainly about the compounding interest, but I will also say in some markets, it is so expensive to be able to buy that it does take a long time to save in order to be able to buy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you can say that you can keep building on that compound interest over time, but you pull out some in the short run 
to invest in the next thing. Because again, what we're talking about is not only distributing risk, but distributing your assets. And so if you can get a valuable asset in an expensive uh, sought after housing uh, market, that's a really wise way to play with your money as well. And again, you're doing all of this by really thinking about the fine tuned details of it by talking with a planner. Exactly, exactly. So then one last thing, one other talking point before we bring in our guest. Um, the third one is around the, something you mentioned earlier, which is around building a buffer. Um, so don't forget to build a buffer. And again, you know, a lot of people think, or you know, I've come across people who think, yeah, I'm going to buy this piece of property. I'm just going to like get those rents. Things are going to be good. It's in good condition. You know, we're just good to go. And of course, things things happen. You know, a tree limb may break. You know, uh, a water pipe might may burst. You have to think about not just things after they happen, but what can you do for preventative maintenance? Like what can you do to make sure that you, you take care of your property in advance? But that's gonna, of course, cost money. Um, so you wanna make sure you have some amount of money set aside for maintenance so that when you think about, yes, I'm gonna have this property and, and it's good to go, it's good to go because, not just because it's in good condition and all the screws are in the right place and you have the new roof on, but you also have money just in case that new roof springs a leak or in case the water heater bursts and you need to replace it. And one of the things I remember saying at the summit is that when things break in a house, everything costs at least $1,000. Replacing a water heater costs at least $1,000. Replacing a, a leaky pipe costs at least $1,000. Replacing a toilet costs at least $1,000. And then when you get to bigger systems, so heating, air conditioning, roofing, then you're talking tens of thousands of dollars. So you've got to make sure that you have some kind of buffer put into place. Also a buffer for your taxes, a buffer for your insurance if it's not built into your mortgage payments. So, you know, just really thinking about what are some of the additional things that go above and beyond just the purchase of the house itself? And I would say just to keep in mind, too, because, um, Derek, what you're trying to do is lay out realistic perspectives, like realistic frames of um, it's not just acquire a property and then you're done. You have responsibilities to have that property um, sustain well over time. Well, before you even get the property, you have to be able to prove worthy of buying and acquiring that property. So you have to be able to show funds. You have to be able to show funds, not only for a down payment and for closing costs, but generally depending on what your uh, credit um, portfolio profile is, um, a lender is probably gonna wanna see at least three months, maybe six months worth of cash on hand that could cover your carrying costs, that could cover the cost of uh, the mortgage, the interest, the taxes and insurance. And so automatically, even to get the financing to acquire such a property, you need to show funds and have that reserve. And then you also want an additional reserve because again, if, you're, if your investment property is not a single unit, it's not a townhouse or a single family, let's say it's a multifamily, let's say it's three units. Well, that's three heating systems. Mm -hmm. That's many sets of windows. Um, that's multiple electrical panels. So you wanna really be thinking in multiples and plan ahead buffer reserve and that's where you have a sense of power and stability and control and that's when it starts to get fun because you've thought out ahead about what could come and you're ready mm -hmm. yep so i think we laid out a good introduction for our guest i think i don't know we'll see what she has to say um for today's guest we have wendy desabe who is a friend of the show she's a longtime friend of the show 
Um, she has over 25 years of real estate investment experience. She is someone who I do um, speak to on a fairly frequent basis to talk about real estate investing and some of the pitfalls, some of the ideas, some of the suggestions that I may need from time to time when it comes to um, some of the things that I need to think about when I'm investing in real estate. So let's bring Wendy into the show. Hi. Good to see you. Good to be seen. How's it going today? Amazing. Amazing. Thank Good. you for joining us in this conversation. Thank you for having me. So Never thought this would ever happen in my lifetime. Oh, really? I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people have reached out to you about real estate inv investing and advice in the past. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> But I think I told you my story is it was an accident that became a hobby and then I turned it into a business. So well, tell I us can't more. say I ever, I didn't start out, I'm going to be an investor when I grow up and do all this. Um, basically, my um, then boyfriend and I bought a house together, fixed it, went to sell it because I did not like the location. It was next to a cemetery, which was beautiful, by the way. The cemetery was actually very lovely, but just didn't have a sense of life. So um, Literally. We went to, when we went to sell it and the um, went to do taxes and they explained that, you know, long-term hold, short-term hold, all that, because we had it for about, I think, four or five years. And how much it appreciated, it was that light bulb moment where you're like, oh, oh, I actually made money doing this? Like, oh. And we bought another house, turned it into condos, um, I learned about that the hard way um, and just kept doing it. And it's like a drug. Once you start doing one, you start getting more involved. And before you know it, you're an addict. So <laughs> You're so, a long-time addict with, yeah. a lot of wisdom, with a lot of wisdom. Yes. What were some of the things you picked up along the way? Um, some of the things you guys touched on, you, uh, having money in case of emergencies, um, we've had busted heating systems in the middle of winter, um, a frozen pipe that happened to get, luckily, because if it's on the street side of the meter, it's the water problem, water, um, it's the water company's problem. If it's on your side of the meter, it's your problem. Mm -hmm. Luckily for us, it wasn't the street side of the meter, so it became the water company's problem and they fixed it. Um, but I've had friends who didn't did, didn't know that little rule. Mm -hmm. And if it's busted on your side of the meter, your problem. Mm -hmm. They'll fix it, but you pay for it. Right, right. So little things like that, um, electricals, trees falling, in your neighbor's tree, but it's not or it's your tree. Whose problem does it become? Um, just uh, uh, mostly um, uh, contractors not showing up, uh, showing up when it's convenient for them, um, charging you uh, absorbent fees, basically holding you uh, as a highway robbery. I mean, they basically stick you up sometimes if they know you have no other option, no choice. Luckily, so, you know, go ahead. So there may be contractors who come and watch the show from time to time. Hey. How, do you, how do you work with them contractors? What, do you, what kind of advice do you give to work with contractors to make life yeah. easier? Definitely having a contract with your contractor. I mean, handshakes are great and every, everyone comes with a great open like heart. 
sure, I'll fix the porch for you for $4,000. And sometimes the stuff is out of his control. I mean, the contractor goes to Home Depot today, the price of lumber is, you know, $4 a linear foot. You know, two days later, it's $8. So things like that, you know, can't be helped. But you've got contractors who, you know, they come in and say, oh, it's $4,000. Then they make a mistake because they didn't measure properly and they cut too soon. So now you have to buy more wood to replace what they, they um, messed up. Or then there's, their subs leave them. Because a lot of them will come and say, oh, I'll do it. But then they have their cousin, their uncle, their whatever come and do the actual job, which is not done to your specifications. So making sure you have a contract with your contract that, that states these things. Like if, if you make a mistake, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. If something happens and I don't like the way the work is done, that how, how are you going to rectify that? And making sure it's a good, clean contract. And you could get those now on Google Docs and all those things. I mean, when we did it, it was a lot of handshake. 25 years ago, it was like, hey, Billy, can you do this for me? Now, you know, you, you can get a good, clean contract and make them, it's a sign-off, so it's legal. Mm-hmm. And everybody's happy. Given the ups and downs of the market, given, you know, both in terms of the the cost of real estate, in terms of the um, interest rates, in terms of the cost of materials. What's kept you going over the past 25 years? I, um, well, when we buy now, we buy equity. We make sure we don't buy just, we don't get emotional about it. That's the biggest mistake I think most people do when they invest. They see some things like, oh, I love this. I can make this into something on HGTV. And that's like the worst thing ever. You're not, they're not there for your emotion. You're not there because you love it. You're there because it makes good financial sense um so you're not gonna go into a million dollar like half a million dollar neighbor for example and try to buy a house for seven hundred thousand that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. you want to buy it for at least 400 because now you have a little bit of equity so if something does happen and you have to sell it quickly you at least got something you know to um to fall back on what's kept us going because we've done this for a long time so now we don't we don't buy stupid you know, I, I, I'm sure Melanie has seen those situations where my favorite, you go into a house and someone falls in love and they overbid on it. And then six months later, it's up for sale because they realize they're in over their heads. I would say that does not ever happen with my clients. <laughs> clients, but you, I'm sure you've seen it happen. Oh, absolutely. It happens. In the market. Yeah. People have to be rigorous. And I, I actually talk with people. This is a business proposition. Even if you're buying to occupy it as your primary home, this is a business strategy until you take ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've learned how to navigate the waters of what to buy, what not to buy, yeah. um, what kind of work needs to be done. Because a lot of times, you know, you'll see these properties and they look beautiful, but it's like an onion. You take over that one layer <laughs> and you see like, oh my God, there's asbestos. And there's a heating system that doesn't really work properly. But the day you showed up, it worked. Mm. Uh, the home inspectors do sometimes get, they will, uh, I, you know, I don't want to dog them or say anything bad, but I've seen, seen situations where someone takes a test on online and they think I'm a home inspector, but and I can tell you what you need done, but they've never had the real world experiences. And then they get there and they tell you, they tell, say stuff to you like, oh, no, this heating system is great. I mean, you could see it has one leg and it's like dragging, but... <laughs> <laughs> And then you buy it and you realize, oh, shit, no, it's not that great. But a home inspector's long gone. You know what's paining me in listening to your examples, uh, Wendy, is, wow, if, if, if a buyer, even as an investor, even if you're buying this in an 
uh, mostly unemotional way, completely bottoms line driven way, um, you benefit from having advising, <laughs> you know, because to be able yes. to yes. vet not only contractors, but vet your partners, vet uh, home inspector and attorney uh, partners for your transaction. Mm -hmm. This kind of property, how much of a reserve might I need for all like guessing as I like to help people think is to look for problems before we even think about submitting an offer. What are the potential problems? Let's put a dollar value to that. And what is therefore this property worth to you, given the kind of risk that it could potentially have buffer for that? Like, so you're only pursuing a property where the risk actually makes sense for your risk tolerance and your cash position. And it's exactly. not about the cute factor. That's whether you're buying to own or occupy or to invest or a combination. Absolutely. You need advising. You really need advising. It's not TV. And also, I mean, like you said, you know, that your advisors. Yes. I absolutely. mean, a lot of time we try to get word of mouth referrals, which but is important, but just still. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we didn't have Google when I started. Yep. I mean, we just mumbled through this stuff ourselves and figured things out. But now you've got Google. Google the person. Are they really a licensed professional? Absolutely. What kind of reviews do they have? And then read those reviews. Just because someone says something silly like, you know, I don't like this person because her dress was ugly. That doesn't mean she's not qualified to do the job. But people will say petty shit like that. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> petty things like that um, yeah. when, they, when they leave a review. But, you know, vet, vet those people. We've all heard the horror stories of the realtor who actually knew the, the people that were um, selling but didn't disclose that. And then you have all sorts of drama. Mm -hmm. Again, and there are contracts out there. I think there are contracts out there where the realtor has to say that they are representing just the buyer, just the seller, or both. I don't know if that applies in every state or in every case, but I think in some places, I think, I, is it Massachusetts, Melanie, where they have to disclose that's that? Right. It's not a contract, but it's a disclosure. They do need okay. to disclose who they represent. It's a licensee disclosure for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also a lot of don't ask, don't tell in, um, in real estate. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's in, no, it could be a buyer beware state. Um, mm -hmm. where, yeah, it's up to the buyer to do due diligence. And again, purposeful, another purpose to have a good advising. I Can I ask, can I pivot a little bit? I want to ask you some questions, Wendy, because you have had such a long run with such a wide variety of acquiring and turning property. I actually don't know how much property you've kept as rentals, but I, I've seen your projects that you've flipped for resale. Can you talk a little bit about how you've made the determination on a project basis of is this going to be something i'm going to buy and hold long term buy and hold for short term and then sell later or keep um um for myself like how how have you thought about these properties um over time um truly it's it's a combination of things so uh, um using boston as an example because that's where we, we know um i've generally lived in the jamaica plain um roxbury um, neighborhoods for me personally, because I, I travel, I like the airport, and those neighborhoods are closer. So like if I find something like, for example, Hyde Park, Hyde Park has been very good to me over the years. Um, in Hyde Park, there have been singles that we flipped over and we just did just flip them. We've also bought beautiful um, triples that we've turned into condos there. Um, but like that neighborhood, I know I wouldn't live there personally because for me, it's not convenient, but not just because the neighbor's not good. Hyde Park has been very good to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just really, it's a combination of things. Is it, is it time for me to move from my own personal residence or yeah. to take advantage of the tax of tax break? Yeah. Um, so within that time frame, and I find something beautiful in Roxbury, guess where I'm going? Yeah. 
you know, uh, or even Dorchester, I've done that too. Um, so it's, it depends on wh where I am in my um, my life, if I'm going to keep it for myself personally. Yeah. For the investments where I'm going to hold them for rentals, I mean, am I buying, you know, a $300,000 building in a $500,000 neighborhood that I know, okay, great, it takes me $20,000 to um, get it up to like habitable standards. So, you know, I refresh the kitchen, the bathrooms, and it's, you know, it's function for, for common or, um, what's what common, um, for new use. Yeah. You know, back in the day, you'd have these homes, you know, it's got nine bedrooms, but only one bathroom. Yeah. You know, so I've now re re reconfigured it. So now it's more, it's up to, you know, newer standards. If I got it at a good enough price, and I know the rents in that neighborhood are high enough, I'll keep it for at least a year or two, be sort of for the long-term home. Mm -hmm. But again, it's 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 a numbers thing. But yeah. if I found I got a house like in like we found one once in um in um Dorchester near Ashmont, mm -hmm. hundred for it. Yeah. And by the time we started, that was a three family. By the time we started finishing all the work, we could sell those floors each off over seven hundred. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you're saying at minimum you are bringing something up to. Uh, what you would call a habitable standard. So that probably is updating some systems, yes. uh, maybe re replacing windows, insulating, but it also yes. sounds like there are instances where you're adding value, you're making the layout more functional and contemporary yes. for yes, that's, yes. what the current rental market or buying market might expect for paying premium. And so you might be adding a bathroom or adding a half bathroom. You might exactly. be splitting up a large room and turning it to two bedrooms. You might be creating an open floor plan in a kitchen and dining area so that you can use uh, uh, another room that would have been a dining room as a bedroom. Like you're- Exactly. You're like exactly. We don't live that formally anymore where we have, I mean, you've yeah. got the homes in Boston that have the closets that are sized They're just tiny. Yeah. And we, I mean, I won't bore you that story why it's that near there, why they, why it's that way. But now, you know, people love walk-in closets. Yeah. People love large closets. They like open floor plan kitchen. The, the entertaining between even now, even the, the hot thing is outdoor living. Yeah. Just because you live in the city doesn't mean you can't have a beautiful outdoor space. Absolutely. And tie all that into the kitchen and the, you know, and the, the outdoor thing. Yeah. yeah, it's but just one big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So we think, we think a lot about that. Um, and also, again, buying something that makes sense for us. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to buy in a neighborhood. I have a rule. I do not buy neighborhoods that I personally will not live in. I don't buy in areas that I personally will not live in. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because if something happens, I got to sell my other house in Roxbury and move to this place, I want to be able to be comfortable there. Appreciate mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's giving you a lot of control, a lot of maneuverability. Like yes. all around, again, you're spreading risk. Yes. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a business. So when I do, when I go into it, it's not, you know, it's not something like, oh, you know, this this is cute. I can make it work. But I got to think that if something happens on one side, can I carry it to the other side, as you were saying earlier? Mm -hmm. So we are coming close to time, but I do want to ask one question for all of us to answer, um, because this show, we, we really are dedicating, we're dedicating pretty much to black and brown folks who want to get into real estate uh, or who are in it and want to own more real estate. So we've been speaking fairly generally about real estate, um, the pitfalls, the preparation for it. But as we think about the black and brown communities, are there any thoughts you have you would want to put out there? So, and I'll be happy to start. So what I've been thinking about and what I have come across a bunch of times is people hesitate. 
they, of course, you know, buying property can induce some nerves. It can make people nervous because it's a big investment. It's a lot of money. You're signing your name on a document that commits you for 30 years. And so people hesitate. And by hesitating, they don't get into the game at all. Even if they are educated and they have the finances and they have the ability, they hesitate and they don't get into the game. And by doing so, they miss out on markets. They miss out on opportunities. And then, you know, six months, a year, two years later, they come back and say, how do I get into the game? It's like, well, why didn't you do it before? So for me, I would say, you know, don't hesitate. Like if you, there's never, there's never a right time. There's never a perfect time for anything, mm -hmm. for anything. So, you know, if you're thinking about getting into real estate and you, you know, you're watching this show, you're talking to other people, you have the finances, you have the education, you have the connections, start, start. You don't have to buy the largest piece of property. You can start with a condo. You can start with a condo somewhere that's manageable where part of the, maintenance and part of the taxes and part of the other things are taken care of for you. And then you can learn from that and then grow your business, grow your opportunities from there. But basically what I'm saying is don't hesitate. And I would add to that, it doesn't have to be in your backyard. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, yes, if you live in Boston, it's a very expensive market, but guess what? There are markets all over the world. Talk to your tax person about how it can and can't be done as far as um, you do your taxes. As we said, there's no financial critical people here, but it doesn't have to be in Boston. It could be anywhere. Rhode Island is beautiful. Oh, goodness. Absolutely. I'm having that conversation with so many clients right now about can they buy in a market where they would get a building for half of what they would spend in Boston, but where the rents are similar. You know, and so you're really trying to figure out how to maximize your return. I would say in terms of thinking about black and brown folks, and when you say that, I immediately think of first generation people. I'm first generation. Wendy, I'm not sure if you're an immigrant or child of immigrants. Um, yeah, I'm first gen. Yes. And that, that like, I know I grew up in a household with a mentality of that you should own what you have. Um, <laughs> you know? And so buy a property at minimum, learn a trade and buy a property. You know, that's what I was raised with. Um, but to understand that I think often immigrants can come with a mindset of being scrappy and being willing to take risks because they had to take risks to get here. And so it's like, can I buy a little piece of the American dream? Can I buy mm -hmm. something, something and hold it over time? And if we think about a lot of neighborhoods that are turning right now on the uh, coasts, whether you're talking about New York City, Boston, San Francisco, a lot of those neighborhoods that are turning, they're gentrifying, are neighborhoods where immigrants settled and had a piece of something, even maybe opened a small business and held on to it for 30, 40 years, and now it's turning. So what I would say is for us as brown folks and black folks to try to think about the long term, the big game. And yes, take a small risk now, a calculated risk where you're getting advising, you're getting help, you're, you know, you're actually thinking about it. But you step in because if you think about the long term and the impact that it can have for your family and the generation after you, it's so much more significant than the small risk you might take now. Um, and so just think about, as Derek said, if you even look back five years in all these regions that I just mentioned, property values have doubled in some places mm -hmm. over a decade. And, 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 and that you're not getting access to that, but also in the same time being priced out of these communities. No, 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 no. If there's a way to get access, even if it's not in the city you live in, but invest yes. in another market somewhere in the U.S., it's absolutely worth strategizing, figuring out a way to do that. And and actually, I also like to plug, you know, I'm actually always happy to help people think about that. Um, I may not be in your market, but I very likely know other advisors within the Sotheby's 
international realty network who are, who can actually sit down and have a thoughtful conversation and brainstorming process with you. So get the help and get started. Yeah. And another, another plug for us is that we will have another realtor from another market on the show at some point. So if you are thinking about buying in another market, particularly in another state, we're not yet ready to talk about buying in other countries. But it's on our minds. It's on our minds. It's on our minds. It's on all of our minds. Everybody here, we're thinking about it. And thank you for this conversation. This was great. Um, Great having you on here, Wendy. Hope to see you again. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And for those of you who are watching, um, if you enjoy the show and you have any questions or comments, please leave comments down below. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you can find out when the next episode drops. But for today, that's it for the Black Landing Forum, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everybody. See you then. Bye.